morning. Good morning. So, how many of you guys in, in school, high school years, was more excelled at the math and sciences, more technical analytical mind, and how many was more like the, the language and uh, arts and liberal arts kind of a thing? So usually it's one or the other. How many was more language, English, literature, art? Yeah. And then, <laughs> it's going to be probably a lot disappointing, you know, America's failing in the science and math department. How many of you were more analytical, technical, English, uh, or not English, but computer science, math? Okay. You guys are going to have fun today. <laughs> it's going to be fun. And the rest of us, we are going to dig down and get some dirt under our mental fingernails today. And we're going going at it this, this morning. Uh, John MacArthur, a great heavy hitter of a, of a theologian, has said that, that these seven verses we're looking at today are the most complex, detailed, far-reaching prophecy ever given in Scripture. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Isaac Newton, who had a very analytical technical mind, you know, apple in my head, obviously. So he said, and he was a strong Christian, he said of this text, we can stake the truth of Christianity on this one prophecy alone. So, I wish that I could just say, trust me guys, I did the math, it all checks out, everything's good, just trust me on it. But I want you to see that although it's messy, the further down you go, you just find that the ground is all that much more solid. And then you dig down further in it, and it holds you even more firmly. I don't think I've ever had to preach a sermon as demanding as this one will be for you, but... That's because I don't think I've ever studied a text of scripture as demanding as this one much for me. Uh, some people think that humility coming to this text, we're in over our heads. And so humility might, some people say, would be, hey, biblical scholars that are so much smarter than I am disagree on almost every detail of this prophecy. No way that I'm going to discern the truth. The truth might not be knowable for me, Mr. Connor, and it must not be that important to my spiritual life. But remember this the whole reason this prophecy came to Daniel, and what happened last week, what were we looking at for the, the, the first 19 verses of this chapter, the whole reason Daniel was praying here in the first place is that he did the math. With this calendar based on the prophecies of Scripture. Daniel's kind of humility was that he saw the prophet Jeremiah's prophecy. Okay, 70 years we're going to be in captivity. And so, of course, in Daniel's humility, he got out his calendar. He got out his calculator app and he got out his Scripture. And he applied himself to understand. Oh, the time's almost up. These were 70 years, and, and, and we're at the end. Daniel was a teenager when he went into this captivity, maybe 13, 14 years old. And now he's pushing 80, and he's like, okay, this is just about coming to an end. We're going to be restored. And so I think we as believers of the veracity of the Word of God, we have an obligation this morning to worshipfully apply ourselves. 
Hear this again. We as believers of the veracity of the written word of God have an obligation, whether you raise your hand for one category or the other category, to worshipfully apply ourselves to this word. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, what's next, mind, and strength. So we'll apply our minds today. I recommend a pen and a piece of paper. Uh, it's going to get technical in this episode of CSI Jerusalem. But uh, let, me, let me pray. God, I pray that you would help, help me and help each one with, with sharpened minds. And then most importantly, sharpened affections. Don't let our hearts be dull. Like the, like the uh, Jews of Jesus' day. Let us have sharp hearts and sharp minds this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Our text here starts, let's get the first phrase in front of us. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord my God. Okay, that's, so with that, right away our context of the first 19 verses was that Daniel was confessing sin. The havoc that is wreaked on God's people. God's people did not walk in God's ways and it cost them everything. And Daniel is just sitting under the weight of this. Of what's been taken from, from them. What they've been taken from the promised land. He's just lamenting the darkness and seeing that it's not just out there those those unbelieving Jews, but even Daniel, this really faithful man of God, says, my sin and the sin of my people. He sees the darkness has also crept in to his own heart. And there's no promises that Daniel gives of, we're going to do better next time, God, get us out of this jam. We're going to try harder to overcome sin. There's none of that. He's just groaning under the weight of, what is God going to do about the darkness? What We're just buried under the darkness of sin. What is God doing about it? It's God who responds to Daniel. At that moment, a decree comes from the throne of God via this angel Gabriel, and God responds with Daniel, greatly loved, here's what I'm doing about the darkness. So let's skip right to this prophecy, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So the goal of these seventy weeks are that their weeks are working toward is making an end of sin. God is doing something about the darkness. The sin that has cursed God's people into slavery, into captivity. And so we don't want to lose the forest from the trees this morning. The banner over this very intricate prophecy is that God's accomplishing a sovereign plan to deal with sin. To make an end of it. He hasn't left us to our own devices. To earn our way up to his level of holiness. 
He has a run out of ideas at this point. He has, the word is, determined 70 weeks. Okay. In Hebrew, this weeks doesn't mean weeks. It just means a set of seven. So, um, you teach our girls a song, seven days are in a week. And you see that there are, it's a set of seven, and that's why it comes out as week in English. Seventy groups of seven. We know it's a measurement of time, but it doesn't identify itself as days. Seven days in the set of a week. It doesn't identify itself as weeks. It doesn't identify itself as months. It doesn't identify itself as years. It just means seventy sevens. One thing the scholars do agree on is that it is referring to years. Each week is a set of seven years. Not days, not weeks of seven days, but weeks of seven years. Why? Well, there's actually uh, at least probably 12 or 15 solid reasons that I read about, but I'll just share a couple. This is actually very common to Jewish culture, to have weeks of years. They had weeks of years built into the rhythms of life in their culture. Just like every seventh day was the Sabbath, they also, every seventh year was a Sabbath year. It was the, the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week was set apart for rest. The seventh year was set apart for rest. They weren't allowed to work agriculturally, to plow, to plant, to reap a harvest. And the way they would survive through that seventh year of the land resting is that God would triple the harvest in the sixth year. Then, watch this, every seventh Sabbath year, so seven, remember, it took seven years to get to a Sabbath year. And after seven Sabbath years, how many years are we at? Forty-nine, I heard a couple of numbers, yes. So on the 50th year, this was called the Super Super Mega Bex Sabbath, big, big one. It's just, they also call it the, the Year of Jubilee. But the Year of Jubilee is as snazzy as, as my Super Mega Bex extravaganza, once in a lifetime used car sale. Uh, it was a once-in-a-lifetime event, and it freed all slaves, were now free, all the land that had been sold has, has returned to its original owner, and every debt is completely wiped away, it's forgiven. It's just a national reset. Everyone's back, no one can get too far ahead while someone's lagging behind in poverty, just reset back to, back to equity. And it was just a huge celebration. Now, this is a stunning concept to us, weeks of years, but it's actually totally common to the Jewish way of thinking to multiply out sevens and to end up with something super special. The Jews, however, the problem came when they didn't actually keep the Sabbath year. Every seven years when the ground was supposed to rest and replenish itself. They violated the Sabbath command of greed for more material prosperity. The thinking was like, why let creation rest when there's cash to be made? Come on. All their economic livelihood was built into the land being fruitful and let's work it. 
So in Second Chronicles, here's a verse. God, he, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So Daniel's in captivity 70 years until the land back home, the promised land, gets to rest for 70 years because that's how long the Jews had been violating the Sabbath year command. God says, you're going to stay out of the land for 70 years until each of those 70 violated Sabbath years are repaid. So, if they were supposed to have a Sabbath year every 70 years, and they, so how many years would it take for them to violate 70 Sabbath years? A little more than Yes. Very good. I, I need a piece of chocolate to, to throw out to you. But you got uh, 490 years. Daniel, in this 70 year captivity, is situated, standing right between 490 years that Israel violated the, God's commands. And now he's between 70 times 7, 70 weeks, 490 years, where this prophecy, uh, where the goal is that God makes an end of sin. An end of all this transgression against his law for the last 490 years. God's working towards an end of it. This is a paradigm shift for Daniel's thinking. He's, he's thinking, where was at the end? I was a teenager when we left. I'm a super old man now. We're just about to come to the end. And we'll be restored. It'll all go back to normal. And his prayer is toward the rebuilding of Israel. And God says, Daniel, I've got my sight set on something much bigger. So much greater. I've got a plan to work, uh, work out all the sin, all this darkness. I'm going to make an end of it. I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Not 70 years, but 70 times 7. 490. Daniel's realizing, I'm not going to be here for that. <laughs> and so we, we've kind of hopefully determined how long each of these weeks are. 7 years. How long is each of those years? Now that seems like a pretty simple question. Seems like a given, but actually 365-day calendar years wasn't common at this point. The Jewish calendar was a really straightforward 12-month, 30-day calendar, which comes up to 360 days in a year. Now, they would notice that we're falling off, falling out of sync with the phases of the moon, and so they would add in a leap month every once in a while. This is how they did it back, back thousands of years ago. Now we have, even our calendar of 365 days isn't precise enough. We have to add a leap year, a, a, a leap day on, on a leap year. So let's read verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Seven is the first chunk out of the 70 weeks. Then for 62 weeks, there shall, there shall be built again, square and moat, but in a troubled time. So the 70 weeks are divided into 7 weeks, 62 weeks, and then a final week. And that adds up to the full 70 weeks. 
I heard a pastor say, this, guys, this isn't a math problem. These are figuratives uh, for you know a short period of time, a medium period of time, a long period of time. But, but really, do you think it'd be a little strange to give such oddly specific numbers to, to something that doesn't have any connection to literal reality? It seems weird to me. So we're almost done. Push through. I think I might have a slide for this. We've got 7 plus 62 weeks, or sets of 7. That's 69 sets of 7. We're almost done with the math. 483 years made up of 360 days. No, but that comes out to 173,880 days. So, we... We just count, all we do now, right, is just count how many days from, from when Daniel heard this prophecy. No, 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 that's not, the, the days don't count from when Daniel heard the prophecy. What did verse 25, 25 say? No, and therefore understand from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. That's when the stopwatch starts. Now, that happened in, actually in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. We have years, years later, hundred something years after Daniel, uh, Nehemiah is, is now um, kind of cozied up to the king the way that Daniel was cozied up to the kings of Babylon and Persia. Nehemiah is cozied up to this king, Artaxerxes, and he's the, the, the wine bearer, the cup bearer for the king. So if anyone's going to try and poison the king, they're actually going to kill Nehemiah first. And so Nehemiah, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, I'll just, uh, it's, it's a long passage, but I'm going to shorten and summarize. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, uh, not Nehemiah, Nehemiah is before the king, and the king says, why is your face so sad? Why is your countenance so so sad, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah says, why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And Artaxerxes says, what do you want to do? He, he had an affection for Nehemiah, and Nehemiah said, like to go rebuild it. And so Artaxerxes funds this whole endeavor and Jerusalem is rebuilt over a period of time. Now the clock started right then of this 70-week prophecy. Historians tell us that Artaxerxes acceded to the throne in 465 BC. So his 20th year would be what? 445. Yes, we're counting BC counts down to Jesus' birth. So 445, remember it's the month of Nisan. Uh, if kings issue decrees on the first day of the month, as they did, that would put us, using our modern calendar system, this puts us at March 14th, 445 BC, long after Daniel's death, and this is the day the stopwatch clicks on. And now we have a starting point. We can just we can project it out and see how authoritative this prophecy was, how vague it was, how specific it was. Read twenty-five again from the going out of the word to restore and build 
Jerusalem, is that the last one place? Build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, seven sets of seven years. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again, Jerusalem built again with squares and um, and moat, but in a troubled time. So there is no perfect Bible translation. The ESV, I believe, is probably the best one we got. If we're on a desert island and you only get one Bible translation, I'm taking this one. But it's not flawless. The original language is the perfectly inspired Word of God, but we're getting it into English. Remember, this isn't a copy of a copy of a copy. It's not like we went from Latin to German and then we got it into English. We're going straight to the Hebrew, but still, this, this really, ESV did kind of flood this one from the original. It's not just my opinion. Uh, the King James and every other major Bible translation puts the seven weeks and the 62 weeks together. It says it's seven and 62 until the coming of the anointed one. So the first seven weeks, 49 years, that gets us down to 396 BC. Obviously not when the Messiah came. That marks the end of the ministry of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. The scriptures are now established. And Jerusalem is fully reconstructed under Nehemiah and Ezra. So the physical foundations are laid. The spiritual foundations are laid. And now we wait in silence for the next 62 weeks. 434 years of utter silence. There's no word from God. There's no move of the Spirit to, to deliver them out of slavery. They, they're in captive from Persia to the Empire of Greece to the Empire of Rome. And waiting for a sign for God to move to send a deliverer. Or a sign that he hasn't forgotten his promises. And during this period, the concept of a coming Messiah really took hold in the Jewish thought. That God's sending a deliverer who's like Moses, but better. That he's sending a king who's like David, but better. The Messiah will come one day. And this is a prophecy about the Messiah. You want to know the reason I suspect it is, is because this word anointed one is the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a Hebrew word, Messiah. And these five English words we have, an anointed one, a prince, is two Hebrew words, Messiah, prince. So this is Messiah, prince, specifically. This isn't Messiah, a newborn baby, Messiah as a child, Messiah as a teacher, Messiah who dies, Messiah who rises again. This is Messiah, prince. This is a royal heir to the throne who is presented in a rebuilt Jerusalem after 69 weeks. And again, this is 173,880 days. The precision of these dates and the expected circumstances is unparalleled. You do not find a more precise time. I haven't proved it true yet, but you don't find a precise timeline of events uh, that with this level of precision anywhere else in Scripture. If, if God calls his shots and he's off by just a few years, it denies the veracity of this book. 
Okay, either Yahweh is perfect in all his ways, or he is not. Either he's sovereign over every molecule of this universe and the story he's writing, or he's not. Just to get the stakes out there. If you were if you were in Jerusalem when this thought watch started on March 14th, 445 BC, Artaxerxes decrees Jerusalem is to be rebuilt. And you're standing there in the ruins of Jerusalem, and you step into a time machine, and you set the clock for the 483 years, the full 69 weeks, 173,880 days. When you got back out, it'd be April 6th, 32 AD. And what would you see? You would see a huge amount of commotion concerning this guy who's riding into town on a donkey. This is Palm Sunday. 173,880 days later, Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into town. Turn with me to Luke 19. This prophecy we're reading is pointing right to this scene. Let's get it firsthand. Luke 19, we'll start in verse 28. The 69 weeks to the day. And Jesus comes riding into this very city, Jerusalem. And when he said these things, Jesus had just given a parable that has a lot to do with this context, but we don't have time. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near, uh, let's skip what he said. No, 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 let's go. Let's, let's, read. let's take our time. When he drew near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt, tied, on which no one has ever yet sat, untied, and bring it here. If anyone asks, Why are you, where are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So they were sent. Uh, so, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Throwing their, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. This saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, And teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, saying, I wish that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus will stop right here. Jesus riding into this very city on the exact day, worshipped as a savior. 
riding on a donkey. There are no odds for this. This isn't a million to one that this would have happened. This, is, this isn't a billion to one. This is just absurdity unless Jesus is the Son of God, unless He is who He says He was. Many modern Jews have come to faith, come to accept that their Messiah was Yeshua by someone who explained to them the historical timeline anticipated by this brief passage back in Daniel. This moment, Palm Sunday, the week of his death, in Acts, prophecy after prophecy, takes the psalm that the crowds are singing from. Psalm 119 says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This line gives me goosebumps now. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray. Oh Lord, oh Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Jerusalem. This is the exact day that the Lord has carved out for salvation. This is the day he's made for salvation. Rejoice. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Look at the rock that the leaders rejected. It's the cornerstone of what God's doing. Just, it's just we, we marvel at this. We just see this and we just marvel. This is marvelous in our eyes what God has done. The, the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone on this day. This is the day that He's made. And He fulfilled this in Zechariah 9. Same tone. Rejoice greatly hundreds of years before Jesus. O daughters of Zion, shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, riding, represent righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here we have the Messiah, riding in, humbly and mounted on a donkey. He's proclaimed as the delivering king. On the exact date that God promised over 600 years ago, he would send a delivering king. And before he's presented, so he's presented now to, to the Jewish leaders. And what's their reaction back in Luke 19? Hey, when you shut those people up, Jesus, people might start to get their own idea and think that you're the Messiah or something. And Jesus says, yeah, I can do that. I can shut them up. But just so you know, if I do, all of creation, the rocks are just going to burst forth in the glorious momentousness of this moment. Look, if, if you can't see what God just pulled off, then someone or something else is going to testify to it. <laughs> it's marvelous in our eyes. But not the Pharisees. The religious, the leaders of the Jews... Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They're, they're attributing messianic prophecies to you. And Jesus says, do you hear what they're saying? Are you not picking up on this? Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and it's this perfect storm. The exact number of days 
foretold by Daniel, the Jewish leaders have definitively rejected their Messiah. The stone is rejected. And this is the week of Passover. We don't have time to preach a sermon on Passover. But the flawless Lamb of God is right into town, right on schedule, on the very day, Sunday, where every household is preparing for Passover by bringing a lamb and presenting it before the priests to inspect if it's spotless, to inspect it and examine it. On this day that Jesus is riding in, He is the true Lamb of God, riding in, examined by the religious leaders. And rejected to fulfill what every page of scripture was leaning forward toward. If you're skeptic today, like the Jewish leaders, to think that the facts and the figures we've covered amount to nothing more than a really interesting coincidence. That takes a greater level of faith than if you just saw that this book is divine and that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus is the answer to the darkness. That Jesus is the one who makes an end of sin. So to the skeptic, go check the math for yourself. Get your calendar and all of that. But realize that there's a point beyond which unbelief is impossible. So if you actually dig into it, just know that there's a point where unbelief will no longer be possible, but your heart will still possibly refuse the truth and take refuge in the most pathetic arguments and excuses, just like the religious leaders. So let me finish in Luke 19 and read verse 41 and 42. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Because on this day, on this day, the fulfillment, they should have known. They should have seen, as Daniel indicated, to the exact day when Messiah would come and offer himself as heir to the throne. But instead of a crown, he received a wreath of thorns. Instead of a scepter, a broken reed was put in his hands. And instead of a throne, he hung upon a bloody cross. Is this, is this prophecy still on track? Is this what God... Is God's plan been thwarted? God had prophesied 600 some years ago, sending this deliverer. He's gonna, he's gonna win. He's my anointed one. He's the ruler, and he's crucified. It's all over. In that crucifixion, what did Jesus do? He made an end of sin. He finished the transgression. He atoned for iniquity. <laughs> Even this was right on schedule from our text. In back, back to Daniel 9, read verse 26. After the 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So this Messiah, cut off, this Hebrew word means to cut down or to destroy. This is a word used for a person's death. 
And it's not a death of liver failure, it's a death of, of violent destruction. Even more specifically, it's a word used throughout the Torah of someone who's convicted as a lawbreaker to be executed. They're cut off, cursed. 173,880 days, and the Messiah arrives, and then after that, cut off, executed as a criminal. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the leaders jeered, Some Messiah you are. You're going to save us? Save yourself. And if they had understood Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53, as Brian showed last week, as Paul said, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They thought the Messiah was coming as a political leader, a ruler, to bring prosperity for us Jews. He's going to break the neck of the Roman oppressor. He's going to make life comfortable. Oppression will be ended. That's our Messiah we're waiting for. And God says, yeah, no problem. I can deal with Rome. I'd love to. But first, can we talk about your oppression under the slave driver of sin? Can we make an end of sin first? Can we address the captivity of your soul? And the Jews basically said, damn our souls. Free us from Rome. Get us back in the homeland. They needed a Messiah made in their image. They were going to say what kind of God they would serve. After the resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Daniel, the prophet, he said to, Jesus said to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's no doubt in my mind that as they walk the dusty road, Jesus quotes to them the exact words of Daniel, the anointed one. He was supposed to be cut off. Don't you see? So, in our text, let's read that again, verse 26, and we'll move on. And after the 60, yes, 26, verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, he now who is this he? The antecedents to it, the last noun before the he, is the prince who is to come. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This is a different prince. And for half of the week he shall put an end to, sac to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes it desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. Alright, so the prince who is to come, 
This is the Antichrist figure we saw in chapter 7, chapter 8, here in chapter 9, we'll see it again in chapter 11, chapter 12. There's a lot about the Antichrist, and so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, because one, we don't have it, and two, uh, this whole scene of this abomination of desolation is shows up again in Daniel 11, Daniel 12. Ryan has such fun with that. Let Ryan enjoy the Antichrist uh, um, implications for our upcoming election, but <laughs> uh, so the text said after 62 plus 7 weeks after the 69 weeks the Messiah is cut off and Jerusalem is destroyed after the 69 weeks is done, which was the day that Jesus rode into town as the Messiah Prince and then we did. Um, five days later the Messiah is cut off. And then 40 years later, Jerusalem is, is destroyed. Uh, but not by the Antichrist. It says Jerusalem will be destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. The prince is still to come. His people destroy the city. In 70 AD, four years after Jesus' death, they rejected their Messiah and their deliverer. And the Jews make a move now in their own strength, in their own power. They're going to cast off Roman occupation. And they have a, they stay a coup in Jerusalem. And a Roman general, Titus, is sent in with an army and siege weapons. And he smashes to pieces the walls that Nehemiah had rebuilt. And he did what Rome always did best. Make an example out of whomever would be insane enough to stand up to Rome. Josephus, a historian, wasn't a Christian, just an objective third party, says on this day of the destruction of Jer Jerusalem, they crucified 500 every day until they ran out of trees. They replaced the forest with crosses of corpses until the stench was unbearable. All in all, a million inhabitants of Jer Jerusalem were killed. They burned the temple, the rebuilt temple, to the ground. And when it burned, the gold and silver that was covering everything melted and it ran down between the cracks of the stones. Now, in order to get to the molten gold pouring out of the temple, the soldiers pried with bars, pried the stones apart until not one stone was left upon another. Exactly as Jesus had predicted. This desolation of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD is monumental, but it can't be the extent of this prophecy in Daniel, because this the 70th week, so much of the content syncs up with the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation was written 20 years, 20-something years after Jerusalem was destroyed, and Revelation is still looking forward to something else that's happening. And so is Daniel. Looking forward to something else, a future Antichrist. And you can tell from the language, if you just, like I did all week, sit with it and sit with it and, and marinate it. The language that's used of the 70th week hasn't started until this ruler comes forth. And the ruler's going to come from the people who destroyed Jerusalem. So the ruler, the Antichrist, is going to be Roman. And he's going to make a covenant that triggers the 70th week. Verse 27 says that final week is tied to a covenant. I don't know when, don't know what, we don't have time if I did, but 
I do know that since the Babylonian captivity of Daniel's day, Israel hasn't even been a sovereign nation until our grandparents' generation, 1948. And the Holy Land continues to be the most hotly contested tract of land on this planet. And I don't wonder why. So that's as far as we'll take the speculation on that. We see with precision the 69 weeks, the gears turn like a Swiss watch, and it troubles me that inexplicably the clock stops. And you do see in a lot of prophetic writing, even when Jesus read in the temple, um, that he fulfilled the writing of Isaiah 62, he stops before the verse that says the day of vengeance has come. Because he hasn't come to fulfill that, fulfill that part of the prophecy yet. A lot of prophets didn't see this, these two advents of Christ. One appearing to deal with sin, to atone for iniquity, and then another to come, not as Messiah Prince, but as Messiah King. And so it's like if you look off into the distance, if you're a prophet, you look off in the distance and you see these mountain ranges. Some look big, some look small, but a small one might be close and a big one might be farther away and they look the same and it's hard. That's, that's the best way that I can understand Old Testament prophecy. Now there is way too much content that we've covered. We're, we're pivoting. If you're half as exhausted as, my, as I am, you, you feel done. And so we've covered way too much content. But please do not leave thinking, wow, those are mean facts. Wow. That is interesting. Good bits of Bible trivia, my God. That is, no. The word is meant to cut through joint and marrow through your preconceptions, and it's meant to expose you. If God's word, as we saw today, is that reliable, if it's that true and trustworthy, if his prophecies are that complex, if every word from his mouth is that beautiful, that illuminating, that authoritative, why don't I live like it? God's word and the, the complexity and the simplicity and the, the firmness of it, it convicts and exposes me. Why don't I live like I believe it's this beautiful, this trustworthy, this living? Why am I not more devoted to feasting on it? Marinating it? Proclaiming it? I wanted to walk you through step by step this prophecy. To, you know, if you need to listen back to the podcast, do so. But I want you to feel confident that you can know the meaning of Scripture and explain to a skeptic, to an atheist, this isn't one in a million. This isn't one in a billion. This is God. This is only divine. Why aren't we more devoted to marinating in this, proclaiming this word? If Jesus was who all of human history and biblical prophecy was converging on. Jesus, will you be ready to receive him? Will you joyfully embrace his rule over you? And I can tell you how you're living now answers that question for you. Your trust in Jesus now and in his word as your source of life it now determines 
your eternal destiny on that day of judgment when Messiah Prince returns as Messiah crowned king. So in this moment, and it's a brief, brief moment, examine, do I live like every word of this word of God is my source of living power? Examine in your heart in this moment, do I live like Jesus' return is my hope today? That if all the prophecies up until now have, have been fulfilled with such beautiful precision, how much more the coming prophecies of his return, like a thief in the night, am I looking in hope to my Savior's face? Would you stand? We're coming to the Lord's table, to communion. As servers, you can come and prepare the elements. But if you're in this room and the, the countenance of your spirit as you come before God and if you're hanging your head saying I haven't even given God a thought this week I haven't even spoken to God in so long and you feel cut off from because of your own doing, because of busyness of life, and because of distraction from media or whatever else, you feel, man, it's been so long since I've really given God the time of day. I feel cut off. Our text tells you Jesus the Messiah was cut off for you. He was cut off so that you could be grafted in. We were broken off from God, from the life of God, because of our sin, and He's made an end of that sin. With His blood and His body making an end of our sin, atoning for our iniquity. So we come, because He was cut off, we're welcomed at the table. We're brought in. We're grafted into the family of God. We're, we're connected to the source of life, our God, again. Jesus, thank you for your work. You're faithful. If you're, if you're so faithful to the big prophecies of Scripture, how much more on time are you in everything I need today? In everything, every need that we all bear today, you are right on time with deliverance and salvation and a word of hope this morning. I pray that over every heart. A word of hope by your spirit as we come to your table, Jesus. Thank you for allowing yourself to be cut off that we could be brought into the table 